0: So when we talk about regenerative tourism, it's always based in indigenous knowledge and wisdom. Where you're from, you are an ambassador for your place. You see yourself as a steward of the land and the ocean and the culture and your community. And so essentially that's all we're doing is we're looking at the visitor industry as an industry for good rather than over extraction and saying what I'm doing in this industry is going to either affect my culture, my land, my water, my community in a positive way or a negative way. is seeing how everything is connected.
1: I'm Kate Tucker and this is Hope is my middle name, a podcast from Consensus Digital Media. Today, we're talking with Mary Goddard, regenerative tourism catalyst for sustainable Southeast partnerships in Alaska. Mary helped me figure out the lay of the land as we headed by boat to Sitka to film for Made in America this past summer. And she's helping a whole lot of people navigate the tourism industry as it continues to grow throughout Southeast Alaska. Mary lives in the small islanded town of Sitka, where in the summertime, nearly half a million tourists come in on cruise ships. These ships bring opportunities, and they also bring challenges for the people who live there and for the environment. In her role as regenerative tourism catalyst, Mary relies on Alaskan native values of sustainability, community, and hospitality to find balance. She is a member of the Clinkett tribe. She's a mother, an artist, an entrepreneur, a filmmaker, an all-around force of nature. And when you talk with Mary, You can't help but feel the wonder and sense the beauty of the world she inhabits, that we all inhabit, from the wilds of Alaska to the hills of Tennessee, wherever you find yourself. Mary, it's so good to get to talk with you today. Thank you so much for joining us.
0: Aw, well, thanks, Kate. Yeah, it's so nice to talk to you, too, and I'm really excited to uh, visit you today. Let's start at the beginning. Tell me about where you grew up. Yakutat is a really small community of about 600 now, but when I grew up there, there there's about 800 people. Mm. Yakutat is on the tip of Southeast Alaska. Currently, I live in Sitka, and so it's about 400 miles north of where I live now. And you know the saying, it takes a village to raise a child. Mm -hmm. (laughs) That's one I kind of think of because... Everything that goes on in Yakutat, you have your neighbors, all the people surrounding you to really help you. And I guess I was just thinking of that because we had someone I grew up with, their parents' house just burnt down last week. Hmm. And when there's tragedy or anything like that, the whole community just surrounds that family with love and support. And it's not something that you you offer, it's just something that you do. I think that's really kind of shaped me for where I go is making sure that community is really important and it's something that I value. Yakutat has hundreds of miles of sandy beaches and forest, and it's just beautiful. Currently where my family's house is, if you look out the window, you can see Mount Saint Elias. It's just stunning.
1: Mm. Alaska is the most beautiful place I have ever been. I just went for the first time this summer, as you know, and you were so gracious to help me find my way around Sitka, and I was blown away by how huge Alaska is, for one thing, and to grow up in a small town like that, removed from other communities, I mean, it's difficult. I actually tried to go on Google Maps from Yakutat to Sitka, and Google Maps today said, there are no directions that we can provide you. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yep. I mean, the sense of disconnection that could occur, but at the same time, what you're describing is such a connected community of people who are stepping up for each other and taking care of each other because it's survival. And it's something from what I'm beginning to understand as I meet more people in Alaska, it's something that's been passed down for generations for thousands of years well beyond i think what a lot of americans even understand when it comes to yeah we haven't been here that long but when you go to alaska and you talk with native alaskans there's this wisdom and heritage and culture that has existed exactly i would love to hear more about your native heritage sure i'm clinket
0: My grandmother was from Klaquan, and so in the Clinkit heritage, you are what your mother is. Mm -hmm. You are what your father is as well, but the way you introduce yourself would be matrilineal lineage. So I would say I am Eagle Brown Bear, although I'm really connected with our culture. I don't speak the language. And that was something that was kind of um, lost for a little bit, and it's being revitalized. Growing up in Yakutat... I felt like there was so much to learn about my culture and that I was not immersed in it. But looking back, I was really immersed in the values of our Tlingit culture, which are things like taking care of community, making sure that you are a steward of the land and the ocean and your culture. There's another saying, a rising tide raises all boats. And when you look at The community structure. It is really about making sure that there's balance and making sure that everyone's taken care of. And so as a mother now, I really want to be around people that are supporting our family and in turn that we can support their families. Mm -hmm. In the Clinkett culture, aunties and uncles play such an important role. And man, how wonderful as a mother to have that support, right? Yeah. And it's something that I'm just trying to make sure that is carried forth.
1: I read your beautiful ebook, The Clinkit Legends, and the part about the trees with the roots and how the roots are all connected. And as the trees age, the other tree roots hold up those older trees. Oh, mm-hmm. it's so true. And even how it was talking about the trees communicating to each other. It's so interesting because now we're finding there's all this scientific research around tree networks and roots in the ground and how there is communication amongst them in order for them to survive and thrive. It's just beautiful to see that the artistry and the heritage that has existed for so long being revitalized and continuing to come forth. I'm curious if there are any encounters you had as a kid or moments you remember where you feel like that really did make an impact on you as an entrepreneur, you know, as an environmental steward today. We grew up with a lot of
0: the traditions, especially the potlatches, The potlatches, I think another word for it would be kuig, if I'm remembering correctly, and Clinket. And there was a couple of different Kooigs that would go on. One was for when someone passed away. And I think through those things, you're helping the family heal, but you're also helping that person who passed away travel onto the spirit world. Mm. So stories are told people receive their names there's a lot of sharing of food and just being with one another and man there's just so many lessons and things to learn at a potlatch that's the weight that comes with a culture or a heritage that's over 10,000 years old is that there's so much to it it almost feels like you never quite grasp everything mm-hmm. but the things that we did learn was balance mm. in the clinket culture there's two different moieties which it's broken down into two clans your eagle and your raven to keep balance it would be if you were a raven you married an eagle if it was an eagle that passed away then the raven moiety would raise up and they would really take care of the eagle clan And then a year later, the eagles would come back and do a one-year payoff potlatch. They would thank the ravens and they would really bless them with pretty much everything they had, their food, their gifts. It was to keep balance and to make sure that we were taking care of each other.
1: Mm.
0: It's amazing because you have your potlatch when somebody passes away. You have a 14-day dinner. Then you have a one-year. So you have like three different phases of potlatches or times where you're allowed to grieve and have time to heal,
1: Mm -hmm.
0: which I think is something that not a lot of people anymore really give their families a chance to do.
1: Yeah, I was actually in another episode talking with a funeral director about this very thing and how the westernized sort of approach to death and dying has robbed us of some of the most elemental and essential aspects of the grieving process. But to have that whole community around you, to have a 14-day stretch of time where you know you'll be fed and cared for, what a beautiful process. Yeah. So you've got this... Incredible culture with 14-day feasting and strong communal connections. You're maintaining balance. And into the mix, you throw tourism. I mean, how do people in Sitka generally feel about tourism? So tourism, gosh, it's gone through so much
0: in the last couple of years because of the pandemic. We were seeing pretty good growth right before the pandemic. And as soon as the pandemic hit, Mm -hmm. of course, that stopped everything. You know, I'd like to say that it gave us a really good chance to reset, focus on some of the things that matter, like health of our communities, our culture, what the community wants. But now it's kind of feeling like it's in full force again. We are set to get close to a half a million people here next year in Sitka, just in the cruise industry. Whoa. And how many people live in Sitka? We have about 9,000 people that live here.
1: 9,000. And then half a million people descending upon that. Where do the ships come in? We have a cruise ship dock Uh
0: that um, two cruise ships can dock at. And then sometimes they will anchor out front of the city and then boat taxi people in. Mm -hmm. There's good parts of the visitor industry, right? Like the economic boost. But one of the things that I try to work with communities is trying to make sure we get ahead of the tourism industry and make sure that we're properly prepared but also shaping it in the way that works for our community. We're all very aware of places, especially like Hawaii is such an example of Mm over-tourism.
1: It's interesting. In the short time I was in Sitka, I got to go to the farmer's market, which was beautiful. And I heard people in the farmer's market who are clearly from Sitka because they're there selling their wares and they had this real close-knit community vibe happening. And I heard more than once someone saying, oh, is there a cruise in? Oh, well, I don't know if I'm going to go downtown because of the, you know, and downtown from where the farmer's market is, it is downtown, but you don't even want to walk a couple blocks because it's going to be overrun by hundreds or thousands of people. Yeah. But I hear what you're saying about the balance and getting ahead of it. How do you talk with people when that's a real issue that's affecting their lives negatively? Yeah,
0: it's to get involved. And, you know, it's so funny because you had mentioned earlier that Alaska is so big Part of my role in this job was working just in Southeast Alaska, and you have communities that see no tourism or very little tourism, right? And they're kind of desperate. One of the things that we talked about three years ago when I stepped into this role was out-migration, seeing how people are leaving their communities because they do not have the resources or the ability to stay in their community. So being able to bring some tourism in would be really beneficial and can create some positive changes. But when you have over tourism, you're going to see a lot of people that are really frustrated. Like we're looking at some communities like Juno who have too much tourism. And so how is it that you can change the great amounts of people to lesser amounts and more quality experiences trying to get people and businesses and tours to focus on the quality versus the quantity yeah studies have shown that the independent travelers will spend more money in the community and part of it is making sure that the money that comes from tourism stays in the community is not just money that's leaving the community and so how do you do that one is independent travel but then there has to be places set up for independent travelers I believe it's trying to build these relationships with the cruise ship industries and having them see that they can become ambassadors for our places, realizing the effects that they have on our communities and our land would hopefully be something that would cause them to make different choices.
1: What was it like for you growing up? Did you experience the effects of tourism in your town? Well, it's funny because I kind of experienced
0: the lack of tourism.
1: Mm.
0: Where we grew up, we could look out our window and see the cruise ship going by. (laughs) And it was one of those things like, oh, well, we would love to sell some things to the visitors or we would love to be involved in this because you think about the Clinkett culture and we are actually a very hospitable culture. I remember growing up, anytime someone went to go visit my grandparents, they always left with a gift. It was just part of hospitality. You came in, you were fed, you were taken care of, make sure you were comfortable. And then when you left, you were sent off with a gift. And so I think hospitality is very much in our DNA, but we want to make sure it's not, I guess,
1: abused. Extractive. Exactly. You know, even thinking back to potlatch and that process, it's hard to commodify hospitality. I think it's a complicated proposition. And the same with art, which is so much a part of who you are as the artist that I think is driving all these other things that you do from what I can see on the outside looking in. And as soon as you start to put a price on a gift or a work of art or an experience, what starts as a relational thing can become transactional. Now we live in a world where that's important. And we're talking about the sustainability of communities. We have to talk about economic sustainability, environmental sustainability. But social sustainability is really at the heart of all of it because how healthy we are as a community will inform our environmental policies and our economic policies, I think, and vice versa. So with all of that swirling around in my mind, I think about your role in Sitka. It's a really pivotal role, and I'd love for you to just define what is regenerative tourism What is your role? Who is behind it? How did you get into it? Yeah, so when we talk about regenerative tourism, you know, it's always based in indigenous knowledge
0: and wisdom. You can see that across the world. And I think it's because when you talk about indigenous peoples, where they live or where you're from, you are an ambassador for your place. You see yourself as a steward of the land and the ocean and the culture and your community and so essentially that's all we're doing is we're looking at the visitor industry as an industry for good rather than over extraction and saying what i'm doing in this industry is going to either affect my culture my land my water my community in a positive way or a negative way and it's holding yourself responsible kind of like an extreme leader right Mm -hmm. what i'm doing is going to impact Everything around me in a positive way or a negative way is seeing how everything is connected. That's kind of how I define regenerative tourism. This position is in an impact network called the Sustainable Southeast Partnership, and it's a collective of organizations, tribes, businesses, and individuals that have really come together to work for the good of Southeast Alaska. Not only are we working for the economic benefits, but we're making sure that the community's built up, that the culture is built up. And then my position is directly funded by two different companies. One is Sea Alaska Corp. Their headquarters is in Juneau. They've really proven that you can be successful if you base your businesses off of values. And they're really good at defining what those values are and making sure that they adhere to them. And then the second company that is funding this position is Alaska Dream Cruises, and they are a small uh, Alaska Native-owned cruise line. I think their biggest ship carries 70 people. Very small, very authentic experiences in Southeast Alaska.
1: Hmm.
0: One thing that the network, Sea Alaska Corp. and Allen Marine or Alaska Dream Cruises have in common is that everything that they do is built off of relationships, In Alaska, you realize you're going to see the same people over and over and over again. These are the people that are going to support you if something happens. These are the people that are going to cheer you on. And so a lot of those decisions really have to be based on relationships because that is something that's highly
1: valued. When you don't have a lot of roads, you can't be burning your bridges. That's right. (laughs) No burning bridges. If you do, man. (laughs) (laughs) Oh. Have you had any experiences in your role with community members, either in Sitka or throughout Southeast, where you're seeing them kind of change the way they view tourism? Yeah, I feel like we've had some really
0: good strides. Uh, Alaska was known for their big open spaces and their wildlife and the beautiful views. But culture really wasn't at the forefront. This year is the first year that the Alaska Travel Industry Association has earmarked money specifically for cultural tourism and has also put out a cultural insert in their travel magazine. And so we've been able to share what we think is important in our cultures.
1: Mm -hmm.
0: And then, you know, a big part of the Sustainable Southeast Partnership is Spruce Root Organization. And for the last three years, they've done a program called Path to Prosperity, which really helps new business owners and established business owners. One example, I just had a meeting with um, the Port of Seattle and the city of Juneau, and they're working on a concept called the green corridor, which if I can wrap this up in a quick short sentence would be trying to figure out different fuel solutions for the cruise lines coming to Alaska. You know, we talked about innovation and how that's part of regenerative tourism. And this is something that they're trying to problem solve and be innovative around in order to solve this problem of the fuels and really how that contributes to carbon in our environment. With the training specifically, the Path to Prosperity, if you get accepted in, it's a three-day boot camp, Mm. business boot camp, that is, and they match you up with mentors show you how to do a business plan and then the competition part the last three years have been regenerative tourism there's two different winners one that's an established business and one that's a new business can win I think
1: this year is 25,000 to use towards their business and what are the goals what do you see happening as regenerative tourism really starts to take root in these communities hopefully independent travel small businesses popping up more food production businesses
0: that can provide delicious amazing Alaska food Mm. the food being shipped in um, that would be great to see it would be wonderful to see balance across the state of Alaska where you do not have a community that's just overburdened with tourism how we're going to get there I'm not sure but I I think the good thing is, is people are recognizing that they can get involved. They can use their voice. They can begin to help shape the tourism industry. I think you're going to see a lot more of cultural tourism. I think you're going to see us attracting people that are genuinely wanting to experience the ruggedness of Alaska, the beautiful cultures, and the amazing food.
1: I want to talk about the food, but before we go there, what about the ruggedness of Alaska? Growing up there, has it changed? Are you seeing the effects of climate change? And talk to me a little bit about how tourism impacts that. Definitely climate change is something that
0: is happening. There's a company here called Fen Alley Fishing, and they're the only pesca tourism business in Alaska that I know of. They get a lot of people that want to know, is climate change really happening? And so I think when they go out on these boats, these fishing boats or glacier tours, people can see for themselves that the glaciers are melting, that the weather is changing. What is
1: pescatourism?
0: The pescatourism concept came from France when the fishing industry was in decline. And so they had to find new ways of being able to generate income. And so they created these experiences of showing people how to fish And treated them like a crew member for a day or two. You know, it was more about the experience rather than seeing how many fish you can bring home.
1: What advice would you give tourists and visitors coming to Alaska so we can be more mindful and respectful of indigenous Alaskan culture and of the land? Learn
0: as much as you can. You know, that's one of the things we've been working on with regenerative tourism is the education component is making sure that the visitors before they come here, they have a little bit of a foundation of what to expect and what the culture is like. So when they get here, it's not so brand new to them, but they can really enjoy it. Same with our tour operators and people in the visitor industry here is get to know the culture. And one thing I get asked quite a bit is, well, is it okay to talk about the culture? Is it okay to share it? Share it as much as you can. And if there's something that you don't know, point people into the direction of others that may have those stories or may have that knowledge. Hmm.
1: I want to talk about one of my favorite aspects of going to Alaska this summer, which is All the food I got to eat. Yay. Because. My favorite. I really was (laughs) so amazed. I mean, I was expecting some amazing seafood, but I did not expect these bright, eclectic, adventurous meals that I got to have. I mean, it was just beyond.
0: I'm
1: so glad. So you have a food blog. Yeah. Tell me about your food blog and what Alaskan cuisine maybe really is.
0: My husband and I, with our family, run a food blog called Forest Fresh Alaska. And really, this came out of my passion to share about plants that people do not know about. Mm. It started off with trying to educate people about the edible plants that are out there. And then my husband's background is he was a, a sous chef, and we met in the restaurant industry. And so something that we've always done together was host dinner parties and cook together mm-hmm. so this kind of just came about um from our love of cooking and all things alaska food which is you know of course salmon and king crab and dungeon nest and oysters and then if you're looking at the forest there's venison there's different greens
1: there's beach greens There's seaweeds mm. there's really quite a a lot of variety It's incredible. Someone said Alaska is like living in a salad bowl. You can just walk around and eat. (laughs) (laughs) It's amazing. Yeah. (laughs) But there's real wisdom that needs to be passed on, right, to be able to do that. Because foraging is a thing. It's like you don't know what you can eat until someone helps you understand that. So how did you learn that? Was it something you learned from your mother? How How do people learn that? There was, of course, some things that
0: we learned growing up. We knew all the berries. We would berry pick all the time. Mm. There was certain seaweeds that we did gather, like red and black seaweed. But that was almost the extent of it for the plants. And I think it was just kind of my interest reading books and trying to find what's available. And as you put that out there, then people that know something about foraging... You just automatically connect. And so I can remember some of the things I learned was from an older Clinkett lady. And she's the one who taught me that deer heart greens were edible and that they would go through the forest when they walked and they would just nibble on them. Mm. I don't think you can find it on the internet that it's edible. If anything, it mm-hmm. says like the berries are edible. And I find the berries are the least palatable of all of the plant. <laughs> <laughs> and so... I think there was a lot of indigenous knowledge that got lost. I would imagine that if the Clinket people have been here for over 10,000 years, that there was quite a few plants that they ate, not just a couple.
1: <laughs> Can you take me out on an expedition you went on foraging or just a moment where you maybe found something and it was surprising or unusual?
0: Yeah, you know, it's so fun because I have a seven-year-old and he loves to go foraging. He loves to discover new Plants and creatures and everything, right? We went out into the forest, and this whole season, every time we would go out, we would see this jelly like mushroom and it was bright yellow. <laughs> Finally, we looked it up and we discovered that it was called jelly fungus or witch's butter. Ooh. And that it is indeed edible, but more than it being edible, it's medicinal. It's a mushroom that can shrink tumors. Oh my goodness. You know, we do live in a rainforest. And so you're going to come across new plants all the time or plants that maybe your eyes were not open to. So every now and then we would do this exercise with my son, my husband, and I would go for a walk and we'd stop in one section or one little spot and say, okay, name all the plants that you can name in this one little one foot by one foot area. Mm. And it's amazing how many plants you can find and how many different plants there are in just a little tiny space. (laughs)
1: He is so lucky that you're teaching him that. I wish I could do that. <laughs> it's amazing. It's so much fun. He, I love that. You're going to have to come back, Kate. <laughs> yeah, I'm going to have to come walk, <laughs> taking the class that your, yeah. your son is. That would be about the level I would be entering at, I think, when it comes <laughs> to plant knowledge. He <laughs> yeah, you, you, you loves it. I mean, how in your work that you're doing with the blog, are you continuing this thread to, to sort of help restore that? tradition and pass on some of this knowledge good question so one we've taught in schools we get requests to
0: speak in schools about the different plants or like at the sika sound science center i have a production company and so one thing that has always been a dream of mine is having a forest fresh show Yes. This summer we had a in our production company we did a couple of episodes we filmed them. The idea is really to have like the education piece, right? Like your adventure, you're going out and you're you're hiking or you're fishing and talking about the food and how you harvest it, the cooking aspect and then of course the fun part which is the dining aspect of it.
1: I'm curious how does an understanding of foraging and the deep wisdom around food in Alaska, how does that factor into regenerative tourism? You know,
0: most of our food comes from out of Alaska. And when I say most of our food, there's an exception with some of the smaller rural communities. They really count on the subsistence months and the summer months to bring in the food that they need to live off of. Mm there's some of the bigger communities that supplement with the subsistence and then just the fact that what well, what is it 90 to 95% of our food is shipped in you want to talk about contributing to carbon mm-hmm. and so if we can kind of localize and get people to start producing the food here there's so many plants right now that people can subsistency
1: live off of that would really help them out you know it's true it's 95% is imported and cutting back Um, That would obviously cut down the carbon footprint for the state. But also, it's a food security issue, right? It absolutely is. We've been doing Forest Fresh for quite a while, but it really
0: wasn't until the pandemic that people really started getting interested. And I think it's because of that food security. I mean, if you are in a small community and you go to your grocery store and there's nothing on your grocery store's shelves, that should be a wake-up call. Mm
1: -hmm.
0: It would not be that difficult to see that we can be without food. And so just empowering people that live here with the knowledge. Of course, a lot of them know already the fishing and the hunting, but the plant aspect is
1: huge. I got to talk with Kylie Ray from Panhandle Produce over in Juno, and she was talking about the impetus behind starting that. Mm-hmm. During the pandemic, when shipments didn't show up, it would just take three days before there was nothing to eat. And this is Juno, which is A city. Yeah. And so it's amazing to think that there's all of this bounty around you if there's a way to harness it, to understand it, and to make sure that we continue to make the decisions that allow for it to continue to grow. Yeah. Before we move on to other subjects, perhaps less exciting than food, because food is, of course, I just want to talk about it all day. I want to know, what's your signature recipe? What would you cook to showcase the foraged and fresh Alaskan cuisine you've discovered?
0: Probably my herring egg salad. Mm. I remember eating herring egg salad when I grew up, and it was good, but it wasn't super savory. And so, yeah, if you go on there, most people that don't like herring eggs will really enjoy this salad. And it has seaweed in it. You know, it has enough ingredients that you would recognize if you've never
1: had Alaska food before. (laughs) Except for the herring eggs. I'm not sure I would recognize a herring egg. That is so true. (laughs) So that one's pretty extreme, but it's really
0: good and it's something that just symbolizes spring is here. Mm. Everything about it is exciting. When the herring eggs come out, you're coming out of like darkness into light. It feels like that's when the new year is actually starting. Where do you get them? Herring eggs, you can gather them off the beach on the seaweed, depending on where you're at. Or what people do is bring branches and anchor the branches and buoy them. And then the herring lay the eggs on the branches. And then you go back out a couple of days later and pull up the branches and um, pull the eggs off. Or just cut the branches and then you boil it with the branches as well. Or blanch them, I guess
1: that's magical. Let's talk about you and your creative life. It's not just food. You are an artist, you're an entrepreneur, you're a filmmaker, and you make jewelry. What drew you to jewelry making?
0: Oh my gosh, I just remember as a little girl, my grandmother had a wrist or an arm full of silver clinket bracelets, carved bracelets. All the older ladies in the community had them, and it was like, if you had them, you wore them. And I just remember hearing the clanking of the bracelets together, and my grandmother, she always dressed up. She always wore lipstick. She was so elegant. I just thought, how cool would it be to make those bracelets? Mm -hmm. You know, traditionally, women were not carvers. And so for a long time, I just didn't even think it was possible for me to become a jewelry artist as far as with the the metals. One day I was driving in Sitka and this older Tlingit man put out his thumb and one of our values is respect your elders. So I pulled over and I gave him a ride to town and he handed me two Tlingit books that were like learning the Tlingit designs. And I know he didn't know that I was in my head toying with the idea of starting to carve. But he looked at me and he said, you know, they didn't let women carve because they thought they would become too powerful if they were carvers. Wow. (laughs) And I just was like, okay, that's my answer. And so I started my journey of learning how to carve in silver and copper and clinket form line work. Can you imagine if you hadn't had that encounter? Yeah, you know, it's moments
1: like that that are just pivotal. And so I'm grateful for moments like that. Yes. Going back to thinking about the cultural aspects of regenerative tourism, how do you think your art impacts your work as a catalyst? And also maybe how does your running a small business around your art impact your work? I just had the honor
0: to be able to write for that cultural insert for the Alaska Travel Industry Association. Oh, cool. And through that, I interviewed another artist. His name was Bailey, and he makes jewelry out of ivory. And I just thought it was really great across Alaska, artists really have their whole lifestyle into their art. When you're looking at like an ivory bead, it's not just an ivory walrus tusk that he got. Everything from that walrus supports his way of life. The art, that's just kind of a bonus from it. And so I feel like it's the same way with my art. It just kind of encapsulates your lifestyle. It helps tell a full story to the visitors when they come because they can just see it as an ivory bead or they can go a little bit further and go, man, this person's lifestyle's in this. I'm learning so much just from purchasing this art. And so when it comes to the visitor industry, I'm always trying to encourage artists to really be involved because they do have a story to tell. Everything is based on values, valuing your culture, valuing your community, learning about art, right? I remember when my mentor was explaining to me about the nest house here in Sitka, and when you look at the, the drawing or the depiction of it, there's eyes in the nest. And then if you look at some more art and you see a spirit face in the water, it's because everything is interconnected. That nest gives life. That water gives life. Everything is seen almost on the same level. They didn't see animals being lower than humans. They didn't see plants being lower than humans. You respect the plant. You respect the animals. If people are going hunting for food, they're going hunting, right? But in the Tlingit culture, they believe that the animal gave its life to you when you go
1: hunting. And so there's a lot of gratitude behind it. I think a little bit about what I've been learning and talking with some different people in Sitka is if you're hunting, there's also that you don't take more than what you need. And it goes back to that balance Yeah, you don't take more than what you need. But for instance, my father
0: and my brother just went moose hunting in Yakutat last week, and they got a moose. Well, a moose is like a 1,000 pounds. So, you know, a small family does not need a 1,000 pounds of moose meat. And so it then is divvied up and shared amongst people that maybe can't hunt in the community. So not only just not taking what you don't need, but if you do take then you're sharing with the elders and you're sharing with people that can really benefit from it.
1: What do you hope to pass on to your son about Clinkit culture? And how do you hope to expand on what you learned growing up?
0: One thing I want to make sure I pass on is it's okay to be innovative. It's okay to try new things. It doesn't mean you are not living your culture And I think what's really exciting is that the culture is really being revitalized. My son is learning more about the Tlingit culture than I did growing up. For me, it's really exciting to witness that. Mm. What's bringing you
1: hope these days, Mary?
0: Oh, okay, my son. (laughs) It's such a joy to see him growing. It's a joy to see him absorbing All the things my husband and I talk about, things that he's learning at school and at culture camp. And so I do have to say my son. I mean, just seeing that new energy, that new excitement, Mm. I think that's the thing that does it most for me.
1: Mary, this has been so wonderful. Thank you so much for taking me back to Alaska and for sharing your perspective. You know, it was a lot of fun for me,
0: and I hope, Kate, that you're able to come back to Alaska.
1: Oh, I totally will. And I'm going to be calling you for recipe advice. Hey, you got it. time. <laughs> awesome. <laughs> Thank you, Mary, for inviting us to learn about Clinkit culture, food, art, and the stunningly beautiful and fragile land and sea of Alaska. You can find Mary's food blog at forestfreshalaska.com. Hope is My Middle Name is hosted and executive produced by me, Kate Tucker. You can find me on Instagram and Twitter at Kate Music. If there's someone you think belongs on the show, please send me a message. This episode was produced by Christine Fennessy with editing from Audrey Noe and Rachel Swaby. Our sound designer and engineer is Mark Bush. Music by the fantastic artists at Epidemic Sound, Soundstripe, and me. Big thanks to Connor Gaughan, our publisher and fearless leader at Consensus Digital Media. Hope is my middle name can be found on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. It would mean so much to me if you would follow, rate, and review the show. Hope is My Middle Name is a podcast by Consensus Digital Media produced in association with Reasonable Volume. See you next time.